Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Good morning, church. My name is Ellen Freemian, and I am wife to Pastor Brandon Freemian, and it's my great pleasure and privilege to bring the word of God to you today. So would you pray with me? Lord, may your redeeming love be our theme till we die. May we know that it is well with our soul because of the price that you paid on the cross and that you did so to bring us into the family of God, that we are your precious children, Holy Father, and that you have not left us alone, but you have sent your spirit out to be in us and to sanctify us and to pray for us in ways that we can't even pray for ourselves. And so, Lord, would you come now and be with us? Would you prepare the hearts of my brothers and sisters here to hear your word and that it may take root and grow a hundredfold so that all the world would see how glorious you are when they look in on our lives today. And so, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight as only you can make them, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So over the past couple of weeks, we have talked about a sermon series on how um, Jesus prayed so that we can follow in his footsteps and in his example in our own prayer life in preparation for how we're going to be prepared to show the gospel to the world. So I wanted to take a little time, as this is the last week, to give a little recap on where we've been and what we've talked about, jog our memories a bit. So Brandon started this sermon series looking at Matthew 6, where we have the Lord's Prayer, and we learned a couple of things. One, we should pray simply, not having to use grandiose words, thinking that that makes God hear our prayers more, doesn't. We should pray privately, seeking to be in relationship with God in our prayer and not seeking an audience of others. And then the Lord's Prayer gives us the substance of our prayers. We should come before God declaring him as holy and hallowed, that his name is great. We should pray for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done. We're going to talk a little bit more about that today. We should ask for forgiveness for our trespasses, even as we forgive other people. And we should ask for deliverance from temptation. And then for the last three weeks, we spent some time in John 17. And John 17 gives us a very intimate and poignant prayer that Jesus prays before his disciples and to the Father, right before he is going to be handed over for a trial and to be crucified. And in John chapter 17, he prays for three things. First, he prays for himself, and he prays that the Father would give him glory so that he can reflect that glory back. And John preached on this, saying that Jesus deserved that glory because he was God from the very beginning, and he was going to fulfill a, a sacrificial gift in dying on the cross for us, and that is glorious. And then secondly, Jesus prays for his disciples and his disciples that are to come. And the disciples have been given the word of God and they have been sent out into the world. 
And Stephen talked about how the word of God is to sanctify us and to keep us from temptation. We should live into the word of God. It should be rich and we should just fill our hearts and our minds with that word of God to keep us sanctified and to not fall into temptation. And then thirdly, Jesus prays for the unity of the church, which is to come. And Brandon talked about how that unity is supposed to reflect the unity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, both in who God is just because that's who he is and just because that's who we are in Christ and who we are called to live and be. We are unified because we are unified with Christ as his followers, but we are also called to be unified and to live as a unified people. And so today we're going to turn, turn back to this time frame of right before Jesus' crucifixion to look at the fourth thing that Jesus prays, for God's will to be done, is what he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now before we get into our passage this morning, I wanted to spend a little time talking about God's will. And as I was preparing for this lesson, I wanted to, I, I did some research and, and I wanted to give two references that you may want to look at later. They're um, both available online resources. So one is from John Piper's 2014 sermon on Romans 12:2. It's called, What is the Will of God and How Do We Know It? And so I got some of the definitions from him. And also from a book by David uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones called The Great Doctrines of the Bible. And I think they articulate the will of God very clearly. And I wanted to give this to you just as, as a reference point so that when you hit this term in the Bible, you kind of know maybe what it's talking about here. So they divide the will of God into two different aspects. The first is probably easier to understand. The will of God is what he commands us to do as his people. So these are his precepts or the principles that we should follow. So if you think about the two greatest commandments that Jesus gives, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. To do that would be to do the will of God. And it's also his laws. So you can just think um, quite literally of the Ten Commandments that God wants us to follow in order to be defined as his people and to show that we are his people. Now, there are consequences for both good and uh, following God's will and for not bad consequences. So if you look at Jeremiah 7, 23, 24, God says, this command I gave to them, obey my voice, and I will be your God. God's will and us following it defines us as his people. And you shall be my people and walk in the way I command you and it will go well with you. But God says, but instead of doing that, his people did not obey and inclined their ear, but walked in their own counsels, in their own stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backwards and not forwards. And then as we all know, this led to the demise of God's people in Israel. The Assyrians came in and attacked the northern kingdom. The Babylonians came and attacked uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, and there were exiles from this, from not obeying God's will. And then this idea of obeying God's will and the importance of it and following it in, is also reflected in the New Testament. So if, in Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus has some pretty hard words for us to swallow about the importance of following God's will. It is certainly not what gives us salvation, but it is who, what defines us as God's people and what we should live into. We have a choice and we have a responsibility, Scripture points out, of following God's command, but we certainly rely upon God's grace to do so. Because as this Jeremiah passage said, in our own strength, we would listen to our stubborn hearts and fall astray. But Romans 12, 2 reminds us to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed with a renewal of our minds. So therefore, we can test and discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So I think when we read the section of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus says, where he says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I think Jesus here is really committed praying for God's will of command to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that has to do with our thoughts and our planned actions, but also our reactions that come from our heart to situations. And our words that we speak to one another should be in alignment with God's holy and perfect will. And Jesus says, that is what heaven will be. Now, the second type of God's will is the will of decree or his ordained will, that God has decided how the world is going to go, how the timeline is going to go, and he makes sure that that happens. It's unconditional and non-negotiable. We can't decide to follow it or not. And it's comprehensive and it's very detailed. And it actually includes these actions, our choices, to follow God's will or not, are all encompassed with God's ordained will that he set from the beginning. And therefore, it's often mysterious and a little hidden about how that's going to turn out, as Matt prayed this morning, but we know that it has a good purpose. So let me show you some examples of verses from the Bible that support this type of God's will. So if we go to Daniel chapter 4, 35, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of the Babylonians, actually recognizes Jehovah God's will at work. He says, God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, and none can say to him, what have you done? And then Romans 9 is a whole chapter wrestling with this sovereign ordained will of God. And at the end, Paul says, will you say to me then, why does he find fault in me if I'm under God's ordained will? For who can resist this will? But he, Paul replies this way, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God in this light? Is what is molded the clay to say to the potter, the molder, why have you made me like this? God's ordained will is sometimes hard to swallow. And then Jesus tells us how specific it is when he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them would fall to the ground apart from my father's knowing of it. Even the hairs on your head are all numbered. And then again, that includes our actions and our choices from Proverbs 21.1. It says, the king's heart is like a stream of water, but the Lord turns it wherever he will. 
So the king thinks he's making these decisions and actions, but it's really God who's still purposing it and who is in control. But sometimes this makes us feel sort of distant from God and afraid from God, about God, that he seems that he's just turning things, right? Is that capricious? Like, what good purpose can come out of a sovereign God who's just making his things come to pass? Like, how do, we, how do we interact with a God like that? And so Ephesians 1 tells us, and the promises of God, that he is working out everything for his good purpose. It says, in Christ, the Father in all his wisdom and insight is making known to us the mysteriousness of his will, according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, for this purpose, to unite all things under him, Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. And this will be to the praise of his glory. So though we are not aware and don't understand every which way God's will is becoming and, and is being set forth, we hold on to this promise of hope that he has a direction and a good purpose for his will to unite all things in heaven and on earth under him. So that feels kind of teachy, and I appreciate that, and some people really may like that, and I, and I hope it's helpful as you read this passage in the scripture. But as we read the passages in the scripture, we should start meditating on it and let it soak into our prayer life, into our daily walk with God. And I think when you think about these aspects of God's will, you come to understand something a little more about who God is and who we are in relationship with him. First, we recognize that God is sovereign. He is sovereign and he has the authority to set his will of command in play. Right? He has the authority to tell us what to do. And he also is sovereign because he directs all things. He truly is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There's none above him. But he's also relational because he gives us these commands so we know how to obey him and to love him and to be defined as his people. And then remember that his will of decree, though it's mysterious, has a direction to unite us fully with Christ in the end. And so I hope that in studying and meditating on God's will, that this will lead you to a place of awe and fear of our Lord and our Savior, and more and more dependent upon him and his grace for us as he works out all the things that he's ordained. So today in our passage, we're going to ask the question, what does it mean for us to pray God's will to be done as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think this is more reflective of that will of decree. God's ordained will is going to come to pass. On one hand, it seems nonsensical, and there's actually writers who think we should not pray this because God's going to do what he's going to do anyway, whether I pray about it or not, right? But Jesus prays about it. So we have to think about that think it, and, and think about it seriously. And it also can feel pretty scary because you don't know what you're stepping into. <laughs> But how are we really going to pray like Jesus did, even if it means that it might be submitting to something that causes us to sacrifice in a big way or go through a very challenging time for his glory? So we're going to return now to Jerusalem and to set the scene. Remember that the Passover has already come. Jesus and his disciples have met in the upper room. Jesus knows what's going to unfold this very night because he has already broken bread and said, this is going to be my body broken for you. And he's taken the cup and he said, this blood's going to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins for you. Jesus knows where he's going. 
And then all is set into motion when Judas Iscariot leaves to go and let the high priest know where exactly he's going to find Jesus apart from the crowds where he can actually be betrayed and handed over. And so while Judas is gone and Jesus knows what's going to happen, he takes the rest of the disciples and they go to Gethsemane. And Gethsemane in the garden, you can, you can visit there today, is an olive grove. The Mount of Olives is there, and the olives would be brought down to this garden. And the word Gethsemane in Hebrew actually means the olive press. And in ancient times, there was a cylindrical mortar that was built, and you put the olives around it, and you roll a big stone and crush the olives, and it would drain out all the oil that could be used for cooking. And it was near Jerusalem, so it was likely used for sacrifice, and even to light the lamps in the temple. So this is a very symbolic place as we think about what's going to happen to Jesus as he is going to be crushed for our iniquities and his blood's going to be poured out, as we just sang, in the remission of our sin. And this is where Jesus goes to pray. So let's read now from Matthew 26, 36 through 46. So then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again for the second time, he went and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came, and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And so, leaving them again, he went and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus, again, enters the Garden of Gethsemane knowing what is going to come. He's read the scriptures, and he's said as much himself. But he is so distressed. He is more distressed than he's ever been in any other time that we read in in the Gospels. Even though he's faced demons, he's faced illness, he's healed every illness, he's faced already some questioning from the Pharisees, And he knows this hour is going to come, and he is distressed. And so if you take nothing else away today, remember this. What does Jesus do when he's distressed? He prays. And he asks others to pray for him too. I know for me, if I'm distressed and I don't know what to do, I'm probably going to go seek more information about it. Get on Google and start Googling, right? Or I'm going to ask for advice for something. Or I'm going to start talking about it with my friends. And maybe my first place is not to go 
to the Lord in prayer, as Jesus teaches us to do, and to call everyone else around me, my closest friends, to pray for me in the same light. And so what does Jesus pray? This passage talks about three prayers that he prays. The first prayer, Jesus says, he asks the Father to take away the cup, but he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So think about this passage. The first thing we learn is that when Jesus comes before God with his distress and with his prayer requests, he calls him his Father. And so I was thinking about like, how, how he feels in this moment and, and how the father feels towards the son even in this moment. So if you've ever taken care of a sick child and they're like, Mommy, make my tummy ache go away. Make my cough go away. I feel sick, Mom. Can you, can you, can you help me feel better? And you're like, yeah, it's just you got to let it pass, you know? Or maybe you've been on that flip side and, ha- and been the parent or the adult or the caregiver that has been asked to take away suffering. Or you have gone to God yourself and say, Lord, can you take away this suffering? And while we don't exactly know the mind of God, I think we can relate to this father-son relationship in this very poignant moment and know a little bit about what they're feeling and how close they feel. Jesus doesn't go and try to meditate into a trance that makes him removed from his suffering. He doesn't go to the God of the universe saying, I don't know what you're doing, what this power play is about, but could I make some sacrifices so that, you know, like, like I would appease you? He goes to him as his father. And this reminds us to pray in the same vein when we go through hard times. But what is this cup that Jesus dreads? Is it that his friend has turned him in? Is it that his other friends are sleeping while he asked him to pray? Is it that he's been misunderstood? No. It's the cup of suffering and God's wrath that's going to be poured out for him in the remission of our sins. And Isaiah 53 gives a vivid picture of what is actually in that cup. And Jesus would have known that Old Testament passage well. In Isaiah 53, it says that the righteous servant of God is going to be despised and rejected by men. He's going to look so horribly hideous that men are going to turn their faces away from him because they can't stand the sight. He's going to be stricken by God, cut off from the land of the living, pierced for our transgressions, crushed like the olives for our iniquities. And then in verse 10, it says this is in accordance with God's will. But then it says that God will look upon the anguish of his righteous servants and be satisfied. This is the payment for our sin. And it is ugly. And Jesus looks at that and in his humanity wishes there were another way. But yet, even though what he wishes is in conflict with and he struggles with God's will, he says, change my will, not as I will, but as you will, Lord. You have a bigger plan, you have a bigger purpose that goes beyond my suffering. And so if we are to pray like this first prayer like Jesus, we must similarly bring our struggles before the Father, 
but ultimately be willing to say, not as I want, but as you want, God. You have a bigger plan and a purpose for bringing your kingdom and uniting all things under Jesus. And that is very hard. But not in this passage, but in the passage of Luke, Luke tells us how the Father responds. And I love this picture. And Luke says that God sends his angels to appear from heaven and to strengthen Jesus the Son. Yes, the Father has ordained what is to come to pass, but he meets Jesus in the midst of this suffering and provides for him and comforts him. And the Garden of Gethsemane proves that the God the Father wants to do the same for us in his suffering. If the Father is willing to give up his beloved, precious Son for us, and the Son is willing to give up his very life for us, then we know what is written in Romans is true, that there is nothing, not in life, not in death, not angels or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation that can separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. And do you see that in this garden? And though he may not remove the suffering in accordance to our will, he will walk with us through it. And that will be our testimony as other people ask, like, what is going on? Where is your God? You say, he's right here. He's walking and he's keeping me. But Jesus is still struggling with what this will entail. And so he prays again, my father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. And so you see here that this prayer is slightly different. In this prayer, Jesus is not asking for the cup to pass, but that God's will would be done. He is accepting God's will of judgment for him. And again, we see how much the Father loves the Son, and the Father loves us to give up the Son, and the Son loves us in accepting that this he will do to pay the price for our sins so that we can be united with him. But what does this prayer demonstrate about Jesus' relationship with the Father and what he knows to be true? And therefore, what, what do, does our prayer for God's will to be done demonstrate about what we believe about who God is? First, Jesus submits even in the Godhead to the Father. He submits in trust and loving obedience to the Father. And he trusts that what he submits to will be woven together to work for good for those that love the Lord as he does. And also Hebrews 12 says that he faces the suffering and he faces the suffering on the cross because he has a hope and a joy that goes beyond death. And so do we because of what Christ has done. But this is still a hard prayer. And so Matthew reminds us that he prays a third time, saying the same thing. So if we are to pray like Jesus for God's will to be done, we will pray this repeatedly. We will go to our Father. We will submit to his will. We will proclaim what we're struggling with. But we also will say, but Lord, we trust that your will will be done and that will bring you all the glory. And then if we go on into Matthew and the rest of this chapter, we will see that Jesus' prayer is demonstrated in his actions. 
When finally the betrayer comes, Judas and all of the people to arrest Jesus, does he fight back? No. He says to Peter, put away your sword. He doesn't seek violence or resistance. He stays obedient and faithful to God. And when he's brought before the chief priest and the Sanhedrin, who remember when he was 12, he had gone before them and just blown their mind about his knowledge. He's silent before his shearers. But when brought to the point of saying, so are you the son of God? He opens his mouth and he says, yes, it is as you say, and you will see the son of God in his glory. So while he does not argue with them, he stays true to the testimony of who Jesus really is. And we are to do the same. And that is hard. And then he is obedient to the Father, even unto death, that it tells us in Philippians 2.8. And as he is mocked and he is nailed to the tree, which is the most shameful, gruesome thing the Romans could think of doing to somebody, he looks around at all these people that have been shouting, crucify him, and he says, Father, would you forgive them because they don't even know what they're doing? When I was... Uh, preparing these slides, Peter looked at that and he said, that's my five-year-old. And he says, why is Jesus just in there his underwear? And I said, because they took off his clothes and they nailed him to that tree. And he said, oh, why did they do that to Jesus? And we talked about the price of our sin. And he, even our five-year-old, he got a little teary-eyed. And so should we when we think about this. But remember that, that that's, that's what Jesus did. And so when we pray for God's will to be done, think of what he paid so that we could pray that prayer. But let's go back to the disciples. We forgot our, our, our co-actors in this story and ask ourselves the question. Now Jesus has given us will of command to them, right? He's asked them to pray and to watch and not to fall into temptation, but they decide to sleep. And so I think that brings us to a point of reflection. And maybe it's not sleeping, but it's seeking our own comforts or not even wanting to talk about it or engage in those struggles and hard things that God has called us to or that are happening in our world, as, as Matt prayed about earlier. And so thank you, Matt, for, for showing us how to submit our struggles to the Lord in prayer. And we have to pray that our will may not be right, but we need to align it with God's will. And we need to pray that we would be sanctified in his word, as Jesus prayed in John 17, so that we would not fall into temptation as these trials may come. And that we would, on the other side, be proven to be refined and sanctified as our Holy Father would want. And then we also have to ask ourselves, am I helping to pray for others who are struggling? That's what Jesus demonstrated to us that we should do. And so in conclusion, what does it mean for us to pray God's will be done? we got to submit our struggles and our temptations to him as our loving father, and we are children bought with a price that we could not pay. We have to be willing to submit our will even though it's really hard. Even the Son of God had to pray three times in the garden. 
And we have to say, even though it may mean my hardship, my suffering, a change of plans for me, Lord, your plan is bigger than my plan, and it is right, and it is good, and it is holy, and it will lead to uniting everything in heaven and on earth under Jesus' feet, and that will be to the praise of his glory. And we do so knowing, as Jesus did, that our joy and our hope is beyond this world, that one day we will be with him where truly his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I wanted to give you this example, and I don't know that Matt knew I was going to share this when he prayed for Ukraine earlier, but um, I saw this video back in February, and this was right before the Russian invasion, and it's very short, but it shows a family singing in Ukraine a song called, He Will Hold Me Fast. And I feel like this video that we're going to share is like a portrait. Like, like if you had everybody on this big panel, you'll see an awkward teenager in the corner, you know, a little baby, an old father, a mother, a grandmother. And they're singing to the Lord, even though they know the Russians are coming to invade their home. And they say a promise, he will hold me fast. And so we're going to share that with you. I think this reflects what it means to pray, Thy will be still look that up on YouTube if you'd like to, to see it yourself. Um, it's very poignant. Um, but I wanted to give us some time. Maybe there's some things in your life that you're having difficulty submitting to God that you're, you're really struggling with, um, that you, you need to submit to his will and ask for his will to be done. So we're going to play the song now in English and, and just have a moment where you can pray and, and ask God to hold you fast even as his will is done. And that'll be our prayer. Amen.
Just this has been satisfying.